Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. As we prepare for our sermon together, I'm going to encourage you to turn with me, please, to the fourth chapter of the book of Leviticus. Uh, Or if you want to get really right about it, the book of what? Vaikra. Important to pronounce that accurately. Vaikra. Okay. So let's turn to chapter four of Leviticus. And as we're turning in here, I just want to welcome the rest of our church family worshiping with us in the Family Life Center and those who are tuning in online or wherever it is and whenever it is you'll be tuning in. Uh, We encourage you to be a part of this conversation. And as we turn our attention to the fourth chapter of Leviticus, let me remind you of something that we're about to see unfold. The first seven chapters of this amazing book include five offerings, five kinds of rituals, the first three of which are voluntary. God doesn't require them. They are expressions of joy and gratitude, expressions of satisfaction in God and and thanksgiving. But now we move into the first of two required sacrifices, uh, two required offerings. And you're going to notice, if you've already read ahead, and I know you have, you're going to notice that there is much repetition in the details of these sacrifices. Stand here, place the animal there, put your hands on this, and arrange it in this order. And it's repeated, remember, that in a a pre-literate society, repetition is how you memorize things. But here we come to the fourth chapter of Leviticus, and and I'm going to help us fast forward through some of the details. When we get to them, you'll know what I'm talking about. The details of how to arrange the animal in all of its Graphic detail. But we begin reading in chapter 4, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, when anyone sins uh, unintentionally and does what is forbidden in the Lord's commands, if, 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 if the anointed priest, the high priest, sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin that he has committed. He is to present the bull at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on his head and do all the weird things previously described in nauseating detail. Okay. Previously, see chapters 1 through 3. Okay. Verse 13. If, not the high priest, but if the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, when they realize their guilt and the sin they committed becomes known, 
The assembly brings the young bull as a sin offering and presents it before the tent of meeting. The elders of the community are to lay their hands on the bull's head before the Lord and do all the weird things previously described in nauseating detail, etc., etc. Verse 22. Now, not if the high priest or the community sins, but when a leader sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the commands of the Lord our God, when he realizes his guilt and the sin he has committed becomes known, he must bring an offering, a male goat without defect. He's to lay his hand on the goat's head and do all the weird things previously described in nauseating detail. Verse 27. Now, not if the high priest or the congregation or a leader, but if any member any member at all of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands when they realize their guilt and the sin they have committed becomes known, they must bring as their offering for the sin they committed a female goat with, without defect. They are to lay their hand on the head of the sin offering and etc., etc. Do all the weird things previously described in nauseating detail. Turn the page to chapter 5. Verse 1, if anyone sins because they do not speak up, when they hear a public charge to testify regarding something they have seen or learned about, they will be held responsible. If anyone becomes aware that they are guilty, if they unwittingly touch anything ceremonially unclean, whether the carcass of an unclean animal, wild or domestic, or of any unclean creature that moves along the ground and they are unaware that they have become unclean, but then they come to realize their guilt, or if they touch any human uncleanliness, anything that would make them unclean, even if they were unaware of it, but then they learn of it and realize their guilt, or if anyone thoughtlessly takes an oath or to do anything, whether good or evil, in any matter, carelessly swear about, even though they are unaware of it, but when they learn of it and realize their guilt, when anyone becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in what way they have sinned. The reading of the sacred word. It's reliable and it can be trusted. So today, as we begin this fifth part in a series in the book of Leviticus, I got to tell you that when I read this passage about the sin offering, or in some places it's called the offering of purification, it reminds me of the great variety of conversations that a pastor has with people. Over the years, I'm reminded of all kinds of conversations that remain in my mind. They don't go away. They stay there. Conversations about, hey, the test came back and we're going to have a baby and there's celebration. Or the test came back and we're going to have to get a second opinion because the cancer has returned. Or we're going through a transition, my company is moving me and we have to leave. Or good news, my son got into the college of his first choice and there's celebration. But of all the conversations that stay lodged in the heart of a pastor are the difficult ones 
that happen in a variety of contexts. They happen in a counseling session in my study. They happen at coffee somewhere, private enough to talk confidentially. They happen on a phone call, called out of crisis, and I hear desperate words, um, this thing happened. And I didn't think it was going to happen. And it was just... It was just a little bit of money, and I was going to pay it back. Or it was just a conversation with her. I didn't think it would go anywhere, but it, here we are, and, and I can't tell you how unbelievable it is to think that we've come to this place, and now this thing has happened. Or he's leaving me, and I can't talk him into loving me anymore. Of all those conversations, there is something that is either said out loud or not said with words, but read on the face of every person I have loved and sat with and struggled through. Is there life after I've blown it? Because I have blown it. Is there any hope left? And when I open the page to chapter 4 and 5, I hear ancient sisters and brothers, I hear ancient patriarchs and matriarchs of our faith saying, yes, there is life after you've blown it because this text, as ancient as it seems, as primitive as it sounds, is a text that is introducing the world for the very first time to a God who refuses to let human beings remain stuck when they've blown it. This passage is about finding a pathway back to healing and wholeness. And I am absolutely convinced, my beloved sisters and brothers, there is somebody on campus today, and I guarantee you somebody watching from away from this campus today, and you have blown it and you know it, but maybe you have been carrying with you this deep and shadowed fear that now that you've blown it it's all over and I am telling you that contrary to every instinct in you Leviticus has something to say to you so that's what I want to talk about today what does life look like after you've blown it but to do that I want us to talk about a couple of things First, I want us to talk about quantum leaps. And then I want us to talk about the coolest word in the history of words. And then I want us to talk about a word even better than that. Quantum leaps, the coolest word in the history of words, and a word even better than that. Let's pray together. Most loving and gracious and grace-giving God, we pause for a moment here as we've opened your sacred word to recognize that it requ we require you to open our hearts, to open our minds. Because we have gathered in this place and in this space with a variety of expectations, some of them very high, some so far down at a lower level that maybe we're not even anticipating the possibility 
that anything is said or done that changes a thing. But your people have brought into this place burdens that have been weighing on shoulders, and I pray that you would remove those burdens for just a while, long enough, that they may hear a word that changes everything. Come, Holy Spirit. Our hearts inspire. And fill us with your holy fire. For if you are with us, then nothing else matters. But if you are not with us, nothing else matters. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Quantum leaps. A quantum leap is defined by Webster in this way. The explosive jumps that particles of matter make from one place to another. The explosive jumps that particles of matter make from one place to another. Now, I'm going to confess to you, I don't know much about quantum leaps. The only thing I can tell you about quantum leap was that it was a TV show I used to watch in the 1990s. Amen? I can't tell you much about the... uh, the intricacies of the interior of any atom. I can't tell you much about the fact that inside an atom there is kind of a grounded state and kind of an excited state. And sometimes, you know, really without warning, if a light comes in between the grounded state and the excited state, there is this kind of photon that will jump. It will leap excessively to great bounds to a different place in the atom. I can't tell you much about that. I can't tell you much about the reality that sometimes it drops back down. This photon will return to its grounded state. I can't really spend much time in church talking to you about the reality that there is another part of the atom is kind of a, a metastable state right between the two, and sometimes that quantum leap happens there too. So I don't know much about those things, so I shouldn't spend much time talking about them. But I will tell you that throughout the course of human history, quantum leaps can be thought of metaphorically speaking. It's not just something that happens in an atom, but if you use the language carefully or uh, casually, a quantum leap is moving from one place to another place with one giant stretch or stride. So, over the course of human history, we've had a few quantum leaps. When we discovered fire, well, that was a quantum leap. When we became carnivores, that was a, that was a quantum leap. When we established democracies, that was a quantum leap. When we invented the printing press, movable type, production in mass scales, well, that's a quantum leap. When we learned to split the atom, that was a quantum leap. And when Al Gore invented the internet, (laughs) that was a massive (laughs) quantum leap. For, for humankind, come on. And I'm saying that to you because when I, when I read in Leviticus, it occurs to me that the Bible is filled with evidences of quantum leaps that have been made by humankind. Let me explain what I'm talking about. You and I read this text and it's ancient, it's primitive. It seems like there's nothing relative to our sophisticated existence in the 21st century when we're talking about bulls and goats and the slaughter of animals, right? Can I give you an example of how even in Scripture there's a quantum leap? It's just a simple 
example. Later in Deuteronomy, Moses, he addresses the issue of divorce, for example. And Moses says some things. Moses says, look, you can divorce your wife, just give her a certificate of divorce, a letter of divorce. And you can divorce your wife for pretty much any reason in the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, it quite literally says, if your wife burns the toast at breakfast, you can let her go. I mean, as brutal as that sounds, not kidding, it's in there. If she burns the toast, adios. But Moses does something that as barbaric as it sounds to us to just throw somebody away, the reality is it was a quantum leap forward because all of his neighbors and the custom of the day was you could already divorce your wife for burning the morning toast, but Moses said, give a certificate of divorce so that she is not left without options this qualifies her to remarry, to re-hitch to another male in society, meaning she doesn't have to be sold into slavery and she doesn't have to give herself to prostitution. She has hope, as barbaric as it sounds to you and me, to say, yeah, you can get rid of her if she burns the toast, but give her a certificate. It was actually a quantum leap forward. You take the same example and you, you move ahead several generations to the day of Jesus In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about divorce, and he says, you know, you've heard it said to the old-timers long ago. That's a paraphrase, by the way. It's not exactly that translation. You've heard it said to the ancients long ago that if you divorce, you should give a certificate, and Jesus essentially says, and that's fine, but I say to you not to divorce unless there is an issue of infidelity on the table. Do you see what Jesus did there? He takes the quantum leap that Moses took and recognized it was time for another one to move forward, and he stretched it forward. And even now, today, I can tell you from pastoral experiences, there are those for whom they have even survived the scarring of infidelity and lived because we have resources, ways to communicate, ways to seek therapy. And so there is healing even after we've made another quantum leap. Are you catching what I'm what I'm saying. So in the Bible, we are introduced deliberately to a God who refuses to allow humankind to stay stuck in their particular era, but tugs them forward in quantum leaps of development, theologically, sociologically. And it's important for us to remember that about the Bible in general, and especially about Leviticus, because when we come to this, this sacrifice about sin, And we read some ancient, primitive, arcane, antiquated um, descriptions of what to do when you've blown it. It's easy for you and I to say, we don't do that anymore. And we don't. And that's a good thing. But don't forget, just 11 months ago, they were in Egypt. In Egypt, if you blew it, if you crossed the line, if you got near the boundary and stepped over the boundary where you knew you were not supposed to go, you were a goner. This text, in a quantum leap fashion, is introducing a God who refuses to let your life end in misery and destruction, but provides a pathway to renewal even after you've 
blown it. As ancient and as primitive as the practices sound to us, remember, I keep saying this in Leviticus, it's not just about what the Bible says. It's about what the Bible does in the lives of the listeners when they hear what it says. And in the lives of the ancients, the thought that this God would allow them to rebuild their lives after they blow it was a monumental quantum leap. That's a good word. So he gives specific, deliberate instructions about what to do each step of the ritual. And that leads us to the next movement of the sermon, which is something I'm excited to tell you. It is the coolest word in the history of words. The coolest word in the history of words. Did you notice when we were reading the passage a little while ago, there is this kind of pattern that was emerging. Every time it got to a new section, it would say, okay, if the priest unintentionally sins, and then he wakes up to it and sees it. And if the congregation unintentionally sins and wakes up, if the leader, if the ordinary citizen sees something they hadn't previously seen, this pattern of the unintentional sin. Now that's interesting to me. There is a word for error or to err in the scripture. This is it in Hebrew. Shagog. Now that's not the best word in the history of words. That's pretty darn close. Shagog means to err, to blow it. Shagog. But do you know what the word is to err unintentionally? I'm about to give you the greatest gift I've ever given you. I'm about to give you a word that will you can, you can put in your pocket and use at any time. This is the best word I have ever heard. To err is shagog, but to err unintentionally, bishgaga. <laughs> right? I mean, feel that. Bishgaga. Say it with me on the count of three. One, two, three. Bishgaga. Doesn't that feel cleansing already? Bishgaga literally means to err unintentionally. And I got to tell you, a good majority of my sins uh, or some part of my sins are, are bishgaga. I got all kinds of bishgaga going on. I'll tell Laura, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the laundry. And so I do it. And I put the laundry in and then I forget to put like the laundry into the dryer after it washes. So like a couple of days will pass. It's like, what's that smell? Ah, oh, bishgaga. You know. Or oh, I go have Chinese food and I bring home some leftovers and I put it in the back of the fridge. And like about five days later, what's that smell? Oh, bishgaga, I forgot all about it. So bishgaga literally is a word that means unintentionally erring. Now don't forget, these, these ancients, these ancients were being given a new order to life. That's what Leviticus is all about. They brought them out of Egypt, and now in chaos, in disorder, the structure of their life has fragmented. Leviticus is all about creating a new order in which to live, a new structure to life, recreating the world. But they were in Egypt just 11 months ago. It is possible, it is possible to say yes to a new order of life and still sometimes, ah, bish guy, guy, get it wrong. There's still a little bit of Egypt left in me, right? Sometimes we can want to do well, and it just, unintentionally, we just get off track. There was a friend of mine in college. Oh, man, I can't believe I'm telling you this story, but I am. 
He became a Christian at Carson Newman when we were, we were students together. It's from Miami. Um, we're going to call him Gary. I used air quotes there. Okay, Gary. It's not his name. Uh, Gary became a Christian at Carson Newman, which meant he lived a, a, a good number of years not a Christian. And he had patterns in his life that were clearly not Christ-like. But one of the patterns that still remained a little unchrist-like was his, um, his language. He had a foul mouth. Gary. He loved Jesus, but he had a foul mouth. In fact, he so loved Jesus that his life, it just it radiated. He had this joy about him. You could tell it was a real transformation when he came to Christ. That just it, He was changed from the inside out. But you see him on campus, and, and you would say, Gary, uh, How's it going today? And he'd be filled with joy. And he'd say, oh, today is great. And we say, Gary, how did you do in the exam that you took? Oh, that exam? Oh, I did. One day, this went on and on and on. One day, I literally saw a friend of mine said, Gary, you can't, you can't do that. You can't talk that way and be a follower of Christ. And, and you know what he said? He said, what? you talking about and he said Gary said uh, what do you mean and, and and he said well look because when you come to Christ something happens inside and and whatever comes out of your mouth is a reflection of the condition of your heart and so if people hear you talk in this way they're they're not gonna know that your heart's been transformed you got to get your mouth in alignment with your heart and his eyes were biggest saucers and he was shocked like like he had never heard this and you know what he said he said no I'm not kidding isn't that great and there was this moment where the bish gaga was clear in him I didn't know but then there was a wake up and then he suddenly knew the truth is there is some bish gaga in all of us for some of us, we don't know where the boundary line is, and, and we cross it. For others, we know exactly where the boundary line is, and what we don't know is our own vulnerability to crossing it. That we get closer to it than we ever should have been, and the bishgaga rises up. The truth is, you and I and all mortals that I've ever met... We may have Christ in us, and we may have light radiating in us, but we also have darkness and shadow. We have a part of us that is not our true self, uh, transformed by Christ, but we also have our false self. That's that part of you that tugs you away from all things Godward. In fact, when Paul talks about this in the New Testament, Paul says, look, this... This feels like a war being waged in my heart. He says, because sometimes I will do things that I, I don't want to do. And sometimes I will avoid doing the very things that I want to do. And it frustrates me. It's, it's tearing me apart. Do you know what that feels like? To have the bishgaga in you rise up and tug you to places you never intended to go. It's like a great hymn, prone to wonder, Lord. I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So here's my heart, Lord. Take, 
and seal it. And seal it for thy courts above. If that is your song, if you know anything at all about singing that song with your life, being prone to allow the bishgaga in you to draw you away from where you need to be, you need to understand you're not alone. You're not alone. Paul also says in the third chapter of Romans that all have sinned, all have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is curiously similar to the way the first verse of chapter 4 in Leviticus begins. Did you notice in the middle of all that reading earlier, it begins with this word, when anyone sins unintentionally, bishgaga, and it goes on to give. But notice, it doesn't say if anyone sins, it says when anyone sins, because bishgaga is no respecter of persons, each of us, prone to wander, Lord, I, I feel it. What's interesting to me is that in both the Hebrew Bible and the, the Greek New Testament, the words that are used for sin are both archery terms. They're archery terms. Think of an Olympic archer who is the best in his or her field. Look at that. Lands an arrow right in the center of the target. Just watch the trajectory. He's going to go again. He releases it at just the right angle. After much discipline, finds the right trajectory and then lands right there in the center of the bullseye. Now, I just want you to look at that bullseye for just a moment. Let it stay up there on the screen for a second. In both Hebrew and Greek, the words for sin are archery terms. You know what it literally means? It means to miss the mark. In Hebrew, it actually literally means to miss the gold in the center. You see the other arrows that are in the target around there in the blue, a couple in the red. You can take it off now. The trouble is, I want you to be aware of the thing that's true in me and in you. You can hit the target and still miss the bullseye. You can hit the target and still miss. God's desire for you is to live in such a way that you are free from the things that bind you. But to do so means disciplining and ordering your life in such a way as to land in the very center of the bullseye. But you can land in the target and still miss the bullseye. Some of us will attempt to order our lives in such a way that we say yes to a rhythm of life, yes to restructuring the world. And yet at the same time, we might, bishgaga, we might not even know that what we're doing has impact beyond us. This is why we come to church. We come to church not, beloved, not to gather here and say, well, look what fine Christians we all are. Look how well we're doing. And look how bad everybody outside of these walls is. We don't come to congratulate our own spiritual prowess and condemn any kind of vacancy in the rest of the world. But we come in here in humility to seek out where, God, in my own life is there some bishgaga rising up. We come in here to pray the prayer of the psalmist, Psalm 139, who said, uh, Search me, O God, and, and know my heart. Try me and, and know my thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in me. See if there's any bishgaga in me. And if there is, reveal it to me that I may be able to walk in the way everlasting. So that's why I think bishgaga is the coolest word in the history of words, but I got better news for you. There is a word even better than that. That's the third and final movement of our time together. Yes, it is true 
that Scripture calls us to consider these quantum leaps that God is calling us to make with God. And yes, it is true that there is bishgaga in all of us, but there is a word even better than bishgaga. And I know what you're saying. But Sean, how can there possibly be a word better than bishgaga? I know, I know. But in order to get to the word that's even better than bishgaga, we have to understand something about what the Hebrew mind thought of sin and blood. Sin and blood. Do you know that they thought of sin as something of a contagion, a contagious uh, pollutant that you could catch like a, like a virus. It had a certain physical property to it. You and I think of sin as kind of an existential kind of separation from God, not the Hebrews. For the Hebrews, there was this kind of very tangible, tactile, physical element in which think of the movie Outbreak, <laughs> the release of Ebola into the atmosphere, or think of the scare, the actual real scare we had in Liberia uh, a couple of three, three or four years ago, where it gets airborne and it contaminates everything. This is the Hebrew mind when it comes to sin. That when you sin, the Hebrew mind, the ancients, in all their primitive thought, <laughs> understood something that we sometimes forget in all our sophisticated spirituality. And that is, when I sin, my sin, though I think it's private, and is discreet and is kept just to me, my sin is never kept to me. But it is airborne and it, it affects every relationship that I have. It has an impact on every organization I'm involved in or institution that I may lead. Every kind of connection I have in life will be eventually impacted by my private sin because our Lord said everything that is hidden will one day be revealed in glorious light. And the Hebrews knew that. And they were concerned about sin because of the contaminant nature of sin. That's why they went in specific detail and said to the high priest, okay, so you have a particular sin and you're going to contaminate this whole congregation. And here's exactly what you need to do as a high priest to deal with your sin before it corrodes the entire congregation. And you and I think, well, that's kind of an ancient way to think. But you tell me. Do you not know somebody in your life, in your family, maybe somebody you work with, and they're done with church? And among the six or seven or eight nine reasons that they are done with church is clergy who are charlatans, who say one thing on the platform but live a different way in private. And the scandals that have come upon uh, the recent days and, 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 and clergy who lead incongruous lives, incongruent lives, have a certain unique way to contaminate the congregation with sin. And the ancients knew it. And then they go on not just to the, the high priest, but they go on to the congregation at large. And they say, well, look, you have a particular way also of contaminating and bringing destruction upon the whole. You say, well, how in the world can a whole group of people have a shared bishgaga? truth is, when our nation was formed, some of its leaders even knew in the beginning of the vile nature of the sin of slavery. But the shared bishgaga of the whole somehow allowed that evil to continue to grow. And in time, the bishgaga began to grow, and that which was somehow unthought through became owned and confessed 
And then compromise began to creep in this bishgaga of sin. So maybe we should stop the African slave trade, but we'll keep slavery intact. And then, well, maybe our compromise should be some states will be free and some will be slave. And then as we add new states, we'll add one free and one slave just to keep things balanced. But as the bishgaga grew and the awareness of its evil began to awaken the conscience of a nation, it would take a war to settle and find true um, release from that sin that had gripped the entire nation. So how can a whole group have a shared bishgaga? Well, kind of like that. And it goes on to give explicit directions that what the whole congregation must do and then what a leader must do and then what an ordinary citizen must do. But in particular, what was interesting was they were mainly concerned with the fact that this pollutant sin would contaminate the sacred space. Why would they be concerned about the sacred space? Because don't forget, the sacred space is where God abided. And if God abides in the sacred space called the tabernacle, right? And suddenly the pollutant of sin began to corrupt the sacred space. And if in the tabernacle, that's where we worship. And if in worship, what we do every time we worship is envision through our worshipful imaginations a world not as it is, but as it could be. Then the reality is this tabernacle that was formed for God and humankind to abide with each other, this tabernacle that was formed so that we could worship our way to a transformed world, if it's polluted with the corruption of sin, it's not just that there's some existential spiritual dimension that we feel separate from God. It's that sin has the power to subvert and sabotage the very design of God's hope for restoring the world. Now, why blood? Why blood? Because they believed that blood had a kind of absorbent quality to it. That's right. It's the quicker picker-upper. And if sin corroded like this airborne pollutant in the air, then the spread of blood absorbed it like bounty, the quicker picker-upper, because life was found in the blood. So blood was the source of life, and sin was the source of death. So covering the, the sin with blood was as if to enact through ritual that blood absorbs sin, life absorbs death. Is it any wonder why in the New Testament, when the New Testament writers are attempting to put words around this great mystery of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is it any wonder why they would use words like this in this resurrection, this great mystery? Oh, death was uh, swallowed up by life. Is it any wonder why the, the preacher who wrote the book of Hebrews decided to use the book of Leviticus as his sermon text, basically, in trying to describe what happens in Christ, he reaches back and pulls forward their own consciousness about what's going on in the tabernacle. And this is what he said. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that now already are here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. 
The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean. Well, they sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. But how much more then will the blood of Christ, who though, or though the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Oh, could anything be more beautiful that, that our ancient sisters and brothers say, look, in order for the thing that disturbs and pollutes to be removed, it takes something of the author of life. And for the spilling of that life to absorb and cleanse and purge you from the sin that is keeping you from being the place where God can restore the world. Because all through the New Testament, you are referred to as a temple. You are the tabernacle. You are the tabernacle not made with hands. You are the divine resting place of God. The dwelling place of the Most High is within you. And when we allow the contaminant of our own sin to reach the inner recesses of our own tabernacle, it subverts and sabotages the possibility that the God who is in you could partner with you in restoring the world. And so in John's writings, the first letter, uh, 1 John 1, 9, we hear these words, if you confess, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive you of your sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, from all bishgaga, which leads us to the word that I told you was better than any word at all. Grace. That's it. Bishgaga is a pretty cool word because it wakes me up to realize there is within me something all the time drawing me away from God. But there is a word better than Bishgaga, and it is grace. And because of God's deep love for me and for you, we are restored in relationship. If we yield our life to God and allow Christ to forgive us of our sins, God proved God's love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's take a moment and offer a prayer to the one who has laid his life down that we may live. Good and loving God, we pause in this moment to simply acknowledge that you are not just the source of life, but you are the only hope for life again when we've blown it. That from the, the most ancient of days, you have introduced yourself as the one who refuses to allow us to continue spiraling in our sin, but provides a pathway. And to the ancients, the pathway, which seems bizarre to us, was a way that made them whole again. And yet, through your Son, you have made us whole. Today, we pray for any person on this campus, anyone who feels a stirring to come Godward, a stirring to say yes, that you would give them the courage to move forward and receive your grace, the grace that is poured over all humankind. Let somebody receive it today, that they may live and that the world may be restored through them. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.